Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> familiar sound of the million dollar man entrance music from the 80s what's going on everybody you got matt here with squared circle classics i'm on here with uh with my boy jay who's also going to be man in the phones first night and you're listening to 80s wrestling radio and tonight we are covering the life and times of ted dibiase the million dollar man we'll kind of take a little bit of a look at him prior to getting to the wwf but Probably spend a good chunk of time, obviously, on what has to be considered one of the most iconic characters and gimmicks uh, in the history of wrestling, and really a guy that had just an absolutely amazing career. We can kind of get into it a little bit, but uh, before we get there, Jay, my man, what's going on, brother? How you doing? Man, I've had a fantastic week. I've been looking forward to tonight where I get to jump on the air with you, and I think, I think for tonight, I'm going to be referring to you as Million Dollar Matt. It just seems fitting for tonight's episode as we talk about one of the absolute greatest villains in the history of professional wrestling, Ted DiBiase. I'm excited for tonight. I'm excited for the callers. I think we should kick this off right now, Million Dollar Matt. What do you got for us? Well, hey, man, I kind of feel like a million bucks because prior to the show, I took a good dip in my pool and got out, grabbed a little grub, and then right before the show, I pulled myself three fingers of scotch. So I'm sitting here getting ready to chat about some old school wrestling with you. And um, yeah, so I'm kind of feeling like a million bucks right about now. You're definitely living the million dollar lifestyle. I'll tell you that. Holy cow. <laughs> next thing you're going to tell me is you got Miss Elizabeth uh, next year. Some ladies around the pool, Matt. You're living the Teddy Biasi lifestyle. I love it. Yeah. Well, everybody's got a price. Everybody's got a price. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, man, Ted DiBiase, wow. Like, what an absolute amazing uh, wrestler. Um, his story is incredible, obviously, you know, going through, uh, through time and, and, you know, kind of how he had to deal with some personal demons, which I find interesting because a lot of it sounded as if, um, you know, a lot of what he dealt with uh, kind of came about from living the lifestyle of the Million Dollar Man. You know, he kind of got caught up in that gimmick and, you know, kind of led him down um, uh, the the wrong path for a while to the point where, you know, he had to kind of take a step away, work on his marriage. Uh, and, you know, he became a, um, you know, refound his faith and became a, a minister. And then, you know, I, he came out with his own um, uh, documentary here was about a year or so ago called uh, The Price of Fame um, that kind of talks about it. But, uh, but leading up to that, man, I mean, the guy was just an absolute incredible uh, technical wrestler. Um, going back, you know, when he started in the 70s, he's actually the son. His mom was a professional wrestler, and uh, his adopted father also, Iron Mike DiBiase, was a professional wrestler. And unfortunately, when uh, when Ted was only 15, um, I'm not sure if you, if you know this or not, but his dad, Iron Mike, actually had a heart attack and died in the ring wrestling in, um, when, when Ted was only 15. So kind of a traumatic thing to uh, to go through, but you know, he, he kind of stuck with the business and, and started making a name for himself for, for being a great technical wrestler. And um, a lot of that had to do, I think he played some college football and uh, was, you know, just naturally athletic. But got into uh, the WWF back when Vince Sr. was still running the show. And, you know, he was, he was showing some skills and some talent, and they kind of just awarded him with this championship that they created at the time, which was to kind of be the, the number two championship behind the WWF championship, which was um, obviously held throughout the seventies, mostly by Bruno San Martino, Pedro Morales and superstar Billy Graham and Bob Backlund. Those four guys kind of held that torch, but this secondary championship, they called the North American heavyweight championship. And Ted DiBiase was awarded that. And, you know, last week our, our whole show was uh, revolved around what the intercontinental championship, um, the history of the intercontinental championship, I should say throughout the 1980s. And that Pat Patterson was the very first intercontinental champion. And that whole thing arose from beating Ted DiBiase in 1979 to win that North American heavyweight championship. And then obviously there was the whole kayfabe South American tournament that, uh, 
uh, Pat Patterson was said to have won, and then that's kind of how they got the roundabout way of, of unifying this uh, and creating this intercontinental championship. So way back in the day, um, before we were to hit the 80s, Ted DiBiase uh, had left his – had kind of like, you know, created his uh, a mark for himself in, in the World Wrestling Federation. And another little interesting tidbit around 1979 is when Hulk Hogan came to work for Vince Sr., obviously he came in on as, as a heel – his very first match in uh, the historic Madison Square Garden, where obviously the WWF kind of made their hay in uh, New York City, Hulk Hogan's very first opponent in Madison Square Garden was Ted DiBiase. So, um, you know, we'll go throughout the show here and kind of talk about some of these iconic things, but it's amazing. You know, we talked a few weeks ago, you and I, about Rowdy Roddy Piper, and I kind of argued for the fact that I think Piper's had the most unique career, kind of how he was able to drift in and out of wrestling. Um, but I would say, like, Ted DiBiase has um, – he, he also has a career that really kind of stands head and shoulders above so many, and we can kind of talk about some of those iconic moments. You know, obviously we'll, we'll get through, um, you know, his, his time as the Million Dollar Man in the 80s when he launched that character. But I think, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't get into the 90s also a little bit because of so many important moments that he's uh, right in the thick of, um, you know, responsible for. So – Anyway, before we get into it, though, Jay, I got a question for you, man. Yes, sir. Let's say you're a maitre d' at a restaurant, and you got this real high-profile businessman coming through for a dinner. He's going to have some important clients. He's kind of a regular, you know, and he's and you've got his table all set up for him. He's going to have, like, a party of five, and, uh, you know, he's probably maybe – a half hour out, like less from showing up for his reservation. In strolls Ted DiBiase and needs a table. And this is the only table in the restaurant right now that's available, but you know it's reserved for this party coming in, this real important businessman. Ted DiBiase asks you, what's your price? And he starts, and he has Virgil whip, bust out a Ben Franklin. How many Benjis is it going to take before Jumpin' Jay finally cracks and has a price for the million dollar man? <laughs> that is a great question, Matt, because as we all know, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. And I'm just picturing this scene. Obviously, if I'm the maitre d', we're talking about a pretty fancy joint where I'm going to be running the show there. And I'm picturing Virgil with his uh, – sleeveless shirt on those guns blazing. And like you said, he's probably got the role of Benjamins and he's just counting them out and he's staring at me. And with everyone he flips over, I can just hear the laugh coming out of Ted DiBiase's mouth as he knows <laughs> that he's getting ever closer to the price. That is an interesting question and I will gladly answer it. But I think that's a question that you should pose uh, to all of our listeners. And so before I give my answer, I'm going to give out the call number uh, there's a few more digits in the phone number than in the price it would take to buy that table from me. But the phone number here is 323-927-2953. 80s Wrestling Radio, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase is the topic of conversation. And Million Dollar Matt just hit me with a question. What is my price for Ted DiBiase? And I got to think I would give up that table I gotta think it would have to be, it have to be in a couple thousand, I think, because you're also looking at you give up that table, you're you're potentially losing that customer, you're potentially losing your job. I would say three, four thousand dollars, and I would give the table uh, and walk out the door. Matt, what what's your price for the million dollar man? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I guess now that you take inflation into consideration, because back then, you know, he's getting away with maybe. Three four hundred bucks to 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 grease his way into places, but um, yeah, you know, I I think you're talking probably at least a grand, maybe a little bit more, um, because I feel like look, if you got this guy coming in, this businessman coming in, I'm sure if you've worked there long enough, you can figure out a way. People might be leaving, you might be able to to work something out. You might be able to buy them a round of drinks, figure it out, kind of how to work it, but. Uh, if DiBiase was flashing some, some, some cash around and I could get that thing at least probably to $1,500, bucks, i would say, um, say I could probably figure out a way to make it work. That would probably be my price. That's so, fair. That's uh, fair. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, um, at some point, you know, you'd you'd uh, you'd probably break. But hey, let's give that number out again, um, folks out there that want to call and chat about the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. The number is three two three nine two seven two nine five three. We're going to be on here for a while chatting about um, everything Million Dollar Man. So listen, we want to hear from you. We want to hear uh, what some of your great memories of uh, growing up and and watching um, Ted DiBiase was like. Because listen, obviously, when when we were young watching him, man, I hated that guy. Like, hate him. And what was so good about him is he, he was such a heel that he's that kind of heel where you continually want to get more of because you just – he's so good at being such a, a dick that you just want to be able to, like, see him, whether it was Hogan or Beefcake, Savage, whoever, you just wanted to see him get his ass kicked. But he was such a great heel. He was just so compelling. You know, I put him kind of in, in rarefied air. You know, I mean, he's kind of in that, obviously, that kind of that Ric Flair, ravishing Rick Rude, um, you know, Mr. Perfect. He just kind of has that natural heel persona that's so fantastic that, uh, that you know, you just absolutely um, love to hate him. So, yeah, I mean, going back and talking about his career a little bit, you know, he, he kind of, after leaving the, the WWF around 1980, he kind of bounced around and, and went into the NWA and a few of those different territories, did some, did some work over in Japan. Um, he, he tagged with the legendary Stan Hansen, and they won a few different trophies and, and tag team uh, championships over in, uh, in Japan um, and then came back and was in the Mid-South and then kind of when it was in that, that phase with Bill Watts and, and it getting purchased and turning it into the UWF, the Universal Wrestling Federation, uh, before he finally got the call from, uh, from, from Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson around uh, coming to work for, for Vince. And, I mean, as the story goes, the um, the the character the gimmick was was kind of already created in house um, you know kind of crafted by Vince McMahon you know what what he would have chosen as a gimmick had he become a wrestler himself because you know as as the famous Bruce Pritchard story goes being on an airplane and and uh, a guy being in first class back when you can actually smoke on planes and Vince McMahon asking the guy to put it out, and he refused, and that's when the whole thing, well, how much would it take for you to put it out? And so when they finally agreed upon a price, Vince is like, the wheels are turning. He's like, that's, that's a character. You know, like, and if Vince was to become a wrestler, that's, that's kind of the persona that he would adopt. And, I mean, to really no one's surprise as we looked at how he became the Mr. McMahon character, you know, later on in uh, the Attitude Era, I mean, it's, it's plain to see that, that at his core – Vince is just a heel, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, they had to they had to sell DiBiase on this character in uh, in '87 without telling him. He uh, because I think they had all these different vignettes and all this stuff was kind of in the works from a creative perspective that they really wanted to keep it under wraps. So for him to come on board, he had to agree to do it uh, with with I believe the sole promise was that this particular character is going to get a very serious push um and so i mean i guess if you're if you're ted dibiase at that time in the last six seven years you know you've kind of been wrestling in in uh, some of the smaller you know i mean i guess you know they're just the smaller territories and, and doing the work in japan you know you finally get the call from from vince at the time and and the and the company's just going crazy right you know hulk hogan is still at the peak of his powers and popularity, and Randy Savage is coming on, and um, you know they've got everything going from WrestleMania, these massive WrestleMania shows, to um, to Saturday Night's main event being a huge hit. So you know if I'm Ted DiBiase and I get that phone call, I'm like you know where do I sign? You know especially if it sounds like this character is going to get a great push. So by the time we got to right around I believe summer of 1987. DiBiase is doing uh, the, starting to do the vignettes, and I posted a few of them on my Instagram account today at Squared Circle Classics. Uh, his very first vignette, actually, where he's in the back of a limo, and uh, you know, kind of introducing his character and what he's all about, and he's thumbing through his money, and he uh, cuts himself, <laughs> supposedly on thumbing through the money, 
and uh, demands that Virgil take him into a uh, emergency room for a doctor, and uh, just so ludicrous, right? And so he gets in there, and there's a, a nurse that's actually working at the reception desk, and I believe her price was three or four hundred dollars. I think it took for her to be able to uh, to to get him in. So anyway, that was our introduction, and then obviously, you know, we get into um, all the all the different vignettes that kind of built that character before I believe he made his debut in, in the fall of, of 87. But uh, I got a question for you, Jay. Um, do you know when he first debuted in, in uh, I want to say it was like maybe August, September of 87, it was at a house show and he did a few house show appearances, but they actually, believe it or not, debuted him as a baby face. Which is really odd because, you know, the whole idea of him coming on board was this Million Dollar Man character. And for them to have to bill him as a baby face for a few house shows uh, sounds kind of odd. But do you know the wrestler that they actually put him up against um, for, uh, for that? For the, for, I guess, well, I guess it wasn't really a feud, but it was, it was a, I think, a few house shows. But they had him go up against one particular guy who was – Himself a relatively new heel at the time. Do you know who that guy is? Well, I have a I have a guest, and uh, I actually have the LJN figure sitting on my desk here in my office as we're doing this show. Uh, and so I think that's a good sign that I looked over and I saw this big fella with a mohawk. I got to go uh, with my man, the one-man gang. I think uh, they tried to put him in a brief feud with the one-man gang, and I even think Slick was involved. Uh, am, am I am I in, am I in the ballpark? Is that is that is that right, Matt? That's it. You nailed that's it. That's it. All right. That's, that's fantastic. That's, uh, that's uh, it. Yeah, I was gonna like hold on to that too and see if anyone uh, calling that might uh, might have it. Actually, again, let's give the phone number again. The, the number of you. Let's let's talk to the million dollar man. Give us a call. The number is three two three nine two seven two nine five three. Um, yeah, so the one-man gang was the, the monster heel they put him in a program with, and then at one of those matches, they, um, they had him tag. I don't know who one-man gang tagged with, but uh, DiBiase tagged with Sam Houston, Jake the Snake, Robert's little brother, and somewhere in one of those matches, they had DiBiase turn on him in the match, and that's kind of how he made his heel turn. Now, I find it so interesting, unless and I got to go back and see if those matches exist somewhere on TV, because if that's just a house show, you know, and you run him through like a three or four house show program as a baby face against one man gang, I'm, I'm just real curious of what it is that they're, that they were fishing for on trying to, to launch that, Um, you know, just having him come in and get some ring rust. Because if you're, if you're just trying to get him, you know, do like a legit heel turn, and it's only done in front of a house show audience, you know, it's kind of a moot point really to, to the rest of the audience anyway. So anyway, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because that once we get into October, November, he's now introduced as the million dollar man, full heel character uh, with, with, you know, he's wearing the, the black and the, the white and the green um, kind of sequined ridiculous suits, which absolutely, I just absolutely love in hindsight. I mean, what a great, thing to add to that gimmick was having him dress in kind of these almost what I would call a Bobby the Brain Heenan tuxedo, right? <laughs> just sparkly and with the dollar signs on the back and on the lapels and, you know, it just became so iconic. But, you know, here's a here's another interesting little tidbit about DiBiase coming in because they did put him in that program with Hogan relatively quickly. And... um this took place, I want to say, down in Houston, and he started feuding with Hogan a little bit, and at the time, he said in some promos that he knew that he couldn't buy the championship off of Hogan, um, but uh, he was going to try to you know, just beat him for it. So he kind of came out as just like this badass heel that just happened to have a lot of money, but, uh, but said, I know my money can't buy that title, but I'm going to win it. I'm going to take it from you. And, uh, and Hogan comes back with a, another interview segment saying, you know, there's no amount of money that you could buy this title with. 
and if you want it, you've got to come take it the old-fashioned way. So they kind of started their program on televised house shows with this angle already. But what was really interesting is, is in right around November uh, and December of 87, and this is what everybody mostly remembers about DiBiase coming in, is his whole the, whole the whole gimmick and the whole feud started with him saying that he wanted to buy it off of Hogan and that he was going to say, name your price. And then, you know, they went back and forth on, on wrestling superstars and wrestling challenge. And, oh my God, Hulk's got to think about it. And, you know, what's he going to do? And so they drug that out for a couple of weeks, you know, and they even did some backstage segments with Hogan, Hemin and Hahn about, you know, the offer. And then he comes out with the big famous, you know, hell no, you know, that he, he would never, he would never sell the, the, the title. So, that was at the end of 87, but what I thought was very interesting was just a month or two prior, they had already kind of run some televised house shows with, with promo segments with them already stating that like all of the money was already off of the table. So they kind of backtracked on that because obviously back in those days, it was a lot easier to, uh, to kind of sweep some of that, that house show stuff under the rug. That's Listen, as you're, as you're going through the history, the early days of Ted DiBiase, I'm just thinking to myself, if you're Ted DiBiase, how you could not find yourself in a better spot coming into the biggest company for professional wrestling and you're handed the gimmick that the boss himself would have if he could be a wrestler. And so as you laid that out, and then you're just going through his first couple months with the company and all the amazing things that he's getting to do as this new, uh, he was there earlier, like you said, but now he's back. And so this is new gimmick and he's kind of fresh in the eyes of the fans. Once again, and he's getting to be put into all these top tier spots. And here he is trying to buy the world wrestling federation title uh, off of Hulk Hogan. I mean, could you ask for a better spot to come into a company and just hit the ground running. I mean, that's amazing stuff. No, I know, right? And you know, I I have to only imagine when when they finally brought him in and told him what this gimmick was going to be. I mean, I if you're if you're a a, a great heel wrestler, I mean, this is this is a dream job, right? Because you're coming in, and not only that, but they you know they gave him they gave him like tons of cash to go out and live the gimmick. So, you know, he had to, when he was out at bars, you know, he had to buy the, uh, the, the bar around of drinks, you know, or he was tipping huge amounts of money. I mean, he had to, to really bring that gimmick to life. And, you know, if you're Ted DiBiase at this point, you're like, man, this is, <laughs> this is like heaven. And I get to just kind of, kind of come out and be a jerk to everybody at the same time. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I think it's, it, it was just absolutely amazing. So, hey, listen, before we get into 1988, which I think is his crowning year, um, you know, I, I, I'd say he's the best heel in the business, the hottest heel in the business in, in the year 1988. But before we kind of start getting into that a little bit, what uh, – and, again, let me give the call, the call number for, for folks that might want to call in. The number to call is 323 297 Two nine five three. You're on with uh, with Matt from Squared Circle Classics and Jay here. We're we're talking about uh, the Million Dollar Med, Ted DiBiase. Um, Jay, you think back to some of those amazing vignettes that he did. What are uh, what are a few of those that that uh, that that stand out for you that come to mind when you start thinking back to those days of of watching him flaunt uh, flaunt his cash? You know what I what I used to love, and uh, he, here's the deal. You opened it up perfectly because you said. It's, he's one of those guys that as we're older now and we look back, we have so much appreciation and admiration for the work he did and how he played that character. But when we were kids and we were watching this man, we hated him, okay? I'm 100% with you when you said that. I was so happy you said that. We hated him because he stood for everything that was the opposite of training, saying your prayers, uh, and taking your vitamins. He was the opposite of all that. He was flashing this cash. He was making people do ridiculous things for sums of money. He was trying to buy his way to the top. And he looked the part. He had perfectly groomed hair. He had a perfectly groomed beard. And he had a body that was, while he was in shape, he wasn't 
muscular like Hogan or Savage or the other guys. He looked like a guy that spent his life paying other people to do work for him. So he played that part perfectly. So as a kid, what I hated the most, but now as I look back, one of the things that I think was the most brilliant is when they would show him taking somebody out of a crowd, taking a fan, and offering them money to do ridiculous things like kiss his feet or do something where they would have to name their price and he would pay them. And then there was even the famous one where he invites that young boy to dribble the basketball 15 or 16 times. And when he gets close, DiBiase kicks it away from him and just does that uh, classic laugh of his. I think those were my favorite because it took his, his ability to just be that prick and it took it to the next level because now he wasn't just doing it to wrestlers. He was doing it to, to kids like us. He was doing it to fans. And I think that was a brilliant move by, the, by WWE to have him do those type of things. Uh, Matt, I know you're a fan of vignettes, and Million Dollar Man's got a ton of them. Uh, they really pushed him. They really backed him, and they spared uh, no expense in making him look like this millionaire uh, playboy that his character was. Um, do you have a favorite Matt that comes to mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a handful. Um, and I think, you know, you nailed it. And I thought the back when they used to do those interviews, um, on wrestling superstars and wrestling challenge, where it was either mean gene or back then Craig DeGeorge was doing a lot of them where they'd have that platform that was kind of in the back of the arena, you know, it was a little dark out there and guys would come out there in the arena. Um, you know, that was just a fantastic platform, to bring fans in, you know, and it looked so, it was, it was legit. You know, they handpicked these people and, and they, they paid them um, supposedly off screen. But, uh, but you talk about just building organic heat by, by, by pulling a fan out of the stands and having them come perform a task that, you know, undoubtedly he would then find a way to, to weasel out of and, and screw them out of the money. Um, I, I think everyone obviously points to the kid and, and, you know, I'll tell you, man, that one hits home a little bit, just, I think, because I remember watching that live and the kid was, you know, he would have been younger than me, I think at that time. Cause he only looked like he was probably like eight or nine years old. And I think I was probably like 11 or 12, but you know, you're still a kid. So when you see something like that, you're like, man, what an unbelievable asshole that, uh, <laughs> that he had to have been. But you know what's funny too about a couple of those vignettes is um, uh, Linda McMahon is actually in one of them, um, and I don't know if it's the one where she had to bark like a dog. There was one woman that had to bark. Can't remember if that was Linda McMahon, but she, Linda McMahon had to do something that where she was kind of kneeling down. And then um, another one in the ring that took place was uh, a very young Rob Van Dam, um, which so. I thought between, you know, RVD and, and Linda McMahon kind of having a tie to those vignettes, I thought was kind of a, kind of a cool little nugget of, uh, of wrestling history there. But I think if you asked me, like, what my favorite one was, oh, man, this is tough. Um, I, 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 I like the one where he was checking into a hotel and the, he asked for the honeymoon suite and there was an actual couple that was supposedly on their honeymoon that they had to go and, and kick out. And, and, you know, and Virgil, Virgil was always kind of hilarious in these, in these vignettes because he had to act like the muscle. And most of what he did was, was just <laughs> yell and berate at the people. Like I always think of the one, two where um, they're at the swimming pool and, and um, you know, he paid the kids to get out, which is really funny to me because that's just like some com- community swimming pool. No pool that, like, Ted DiBiase would probably ever want to hang out at, but he had to have that one. And, you know, uh, I think they said that the chlorine was too high, so the, the guy was trying to get him out. And, and uh, you got Virgil sitting there yelling at a bunch of kids, telling them, hey, you brats, get out of the pool. You know, and then same with the this, this couple – that was supposedly on their honeymoon and, you know, Virgil's kind of helping them get their suitcases and throw them out the door. And, you know, I, I think it just added a whole, added like a whole other element to, uh, to, to the character. You're absolutely right. And when you mentioned the, uh, the swimming pool one, I totally remember that. And you're right. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a public pool that, like you said, Million Dollar Man would have no business 
visiting, nor would he want to. But yeah, he pays, he pays the man uh, at the at the at the front at the sliding window or whatever it was. Uh, and the man keeps saying no, and he keeps flashing the cash. And Virgil kicks all the kids out of the pool, and they show uh, Ted DiBiase laying poolside doing his lap. Uh, those vignettes were genius. Um, yeah, it makes you it makes you long for a simpler time when we had that kind of uh, promos filling our airwaves. And just uh, as a kid, you hated them. You hated them, but as you look back now, you see the genius in all of it. Um, yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the part where uh, we'll talk about it. Uh, coming up when he uh, goes to the jewelry store. Those vignettes were, were amazing as well. Um, but you're giving a great, great history lesson here on the wrestling uh, history of million-dollar man Ted DiBiase, Matt. So keep it up, man. You're bringing back some great memories. Yeah. Hey, Jay, do you want to hit him up with, uh, with the call-in info? Absolutely. We're here live on 80s Wrestling Radio, and we want to hear from you, our callers, our listeners. So if you're out there, and certainly if you're listening, you remember the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your favorite memories, your favorite vignettes. And yes, we want to know what's your price for the Million Dollar Man. The call-in number here is 323-927-2953. That's 323-927-2953. Matt and Jay, we're on 80s Wrestling Radio Live talking about the career of one of the greatest villains to ever grace the squared circle, Mr. Ted DiBiase. Matt, where are you taking us next in our Wayback Machine? Well, I mean, I think we're kind of at the place where we should probably talk about his – his his crowning year um you know i i i think it's it's hard to argue that you know 1988 even though he didn't win the championship uh ted dibiase was the the core heel of the company in 1988 um and i would say throughout all of wrestling um he um he had a just a remarkable run that entire year and you know, if we, we kind of look at how that whole thing evolved where, you know, you get into the early part of February in 1988 where um, we, uh, we look at Hogan versus Andre. And this was in the main event, not Saturday night's main event, but the main event, which I believe took place in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, it was on a Friday night. So it was uh, still the main event, not Saturday night's main event, but the main event. And it drew, I can't remember what the number was, but like it has, and I think it might even be a record that stands to this day, or it's right near the top in terms of being the highest rated wrestling program um, ever on network television. Uh, but uh, it was huge, right? Because it was kind of the, the, the rubber match with Andre and, uh, and the setup for that whole thing was huge. If, if you recall the, the setup kind of came from um, the Saturday night's main event that took place in January when Hulk Hogan wrestled King Kong Bundy. And at the end of that, uh, Bundy was disqualified, and then you had Andre come in the ring, and he starts beating up Hogan and headbutting him, and then you had to have all these guys from the back try to come in and get him off, and you know he chokes Hogan out. And anyway, that sets the stage for the main event. Well, in between that month, that's when we find out that DiBiase has, you know, quote unquote, secured the services of Andre the Giant to more or less just win the championship for him. And so, you know, that that main event, I want to say it was February 5th or February 6th of 1988, uh, is when that match took place. And, and obviously, I mean, I can't think of a bigger swerve that we've ever seen in 80s wrestling than that particular match because going into that, I mean, and what's amazing is, you know, they had done a great job of building everything up. You know, they formed the mega powers by this point, um, you know, that, but we hadn't really gotten to like what the big WrestleMania storyline was going to be. And it, you know, it looked like this Hogan Andre thing was going to kind of take care of itself um, in early February. And so, you know, we had no idea what to expect. And so when, when you know, Andre gets that kind of side suplex on Hogan and the fake three count and he wins, you know, I just remember being, you know, my jaw dropped, you know, seeing Hulk Hogan lose. It was the first time he'd lost in, in four years. 
and uh, you know, then the whole referee thing with the Hebner twins. I mean, I think that's what really blew my mind. I think is when, and I can't remember which wrestler or which guy it is. I can't remember. I think Dave Hebner was the actual ref, and then Earl Hebner, his twin, came down, and the whole thing was just anarchy. And I mean, I think everyone was just absolutely stunned. Um, you know, if, if Andre went in the belt and then immediately surrendering it, surrendering it to DiBiase, I mean, as a as a kid, as a wrestling fan, you're just like, how could this happen? It was the most devastating thing ever. You know, you were talking about it with your friends at at school uh, on Monday. Like, you know, you really got to tip your hat to to Vince and um, you know, I guess at the time Bruce Pritchard and uh, and Pat Patterson, the guys that were kind of at the core of that creative to to build that storyline because, man, you talk about really getting hit with the element of surprise out at left field. That is it. So, hey, it looks like we've got we'll, – we'll come back and chat about this because it's obviously an iconic moment. But uh, right now we've got Jacob. Jacob is in Brooklyn holding on line one. Jacob, you're on with Matt and Jay, 80s Wrestling Radio, talking about the Million Dollar Man. What's going on, Jacob? Hey, nothing much. Yeah, um, the Million Dollar Man, I think for, for a guy who who, who, who could have easily been NWA champion, who could have easily been WWF champion, he had a great career to where he didn't even, he had one of those Paul Ono careers where they never won that big, that big championship, but they always had a good career. Most definitely. In fact, you know, I think by the time the end of the show here, we're going to run through some additional highlights of his career. You know, Ted DiBiase is at the heart of some of the biggest moments in what we would call the golden era of wrestling and into um, the attitude era. I mean, essentially, I mean, he is literally right in the thick of some of the biggest things that happened and played a crucial role in it. And, you know, a lot of people, and, and myself included, you know, I threw out a thing on my Instagram page a long time ago, you know, between DiBiase and Jake the Snake and Rick Rude and, um, you know, Mr. Perfect, those four guys, you know, who would be most deserving of the title. And, like, they all have a case for it, and they all could have been great heel champions. But I look at Ted DiBiase's career in its, in its totality, you know, he didn't have he, – he, you know, he's one of those guys, he didn't have to have it because his heel persona was so amazing that he was just such a draw. Um, and I don't think him not winning the, the you know, the WWF championship it, it takes away anything from his career. Um, you know, he had an absolutely amazing uh, career just based on the number of superstars that he was able to work with and elevate and, again – you know, be at the the crux of so many uh, core moments. Um, Jacob, let me ask you, man. What um, when we talk about like you know Ted DiBiase as a as a wrestler, do you have kind of like a favorite match or opponent or feud that uh, that he was involved in? Well, I always I always liked the matches he had with Savage, even at the Garden where he had the steel cage match. He him, him and Savage always had some good matches. Of course, I agree. The, and Dusty was good. Yeah. You would have thought that. I mean, even even though even though I mean you had to build the storyline and he got caught in between because I heard a, I heard a rumor that he actually was supposed to win that title at WrestleMania four, but Honky Tonk Man didn't want to drop the IC belt to Savage, so they promised Savage the belt. Yeah, you know, that's a tough one. It seems like, you know, Savage was kind of the guy that was going to be tapped to to be the next guy. I think the when we kind of saw the Mega Powers form at the end of 87, I think that that was kind of the beginning of the Hulk dust rubbing on to Savage and that they had predetermined because he was such a, a great intercontinental champion that they're like, okay, you know, it's going to be his turn next. But, you know, you think about if they could have – if they were open to reworking some of that programming – where DiBiase could have won that championship at WrestleMania four, where then you could have had Savage kind of chase him and, you know, maybe SummerSlam or something, they get to that where, you know, Savage could have got it. They could have had a really interesting series of, uh, of, of title switches, you know, back and forth, kind of almost like, you know, at that same time, you, you know, uh, almost at that same time in the NWA, you had Flair and Steamboat, um, with that trilogy of matches, you know, you could have almost 
created something similar to that uh, with with DiBiase and Savage because I agree that their um, their promos against each other are some of the best are some of the best I think work of the golden era when it comes to uh, the mic work and interviews and promos. Savage and DiBiase could just absolutely captivate an audience with um, with their hatred for each other and. Um, you know, I think after this show, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little live watch along on my Instagram feed where Savage takes on Virgil, but it becomes an absolute melee towards the end. Um, and then it's capped off with an amazing promo by, uh, by DiBiase. But, uh, but yeah, man, well, Hey, Jacob, I want to thank you for the call, man. I know you called in a couple of times and, um, I want to say thanks for, for listening to the show and being a loyal listener and caller. Hey, thank you. And, and and one more thing. Yeah. How great can you be that you decide, which is my favorite vignette, how great can you be that you decide that, you know what, I don't even need the WWF belt. I can make my own belt. <laughs> and if you think about it, if you think about it, that million-dollar belt was the first FTW belt. That, you remember when Taz made his belt? You could, you could, you could say that that million-dollar belt was that same thing. Yeah, man, for sure. Yeah, no, the million dollar belt. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, to this day, he's the only wrestler that was able to create his own belt that actually lasted for several years. I mean, that thing was in storylines, I believe, um, you know, to when uh, Steve Austin came came on board. So we're talking, I think he made that belt in uh, what, 89, early 89. And that belt was was uh, was active in terms of different storylines for a good like seven years, and you know there's no wrestler that I can think of uh, that comes to mind that that ever did anything remotely close to that. So, yeah, I mean if you can't if you can't get the top belt, just make your own. All right, hey man, we're going on to one of another one of our loyal listeners and callers. We got Matt on line two. Matt, what's going on, brother? You're on with Matt and Jay here on 80s Wrestling Radio talking about the Million Dollar Man. Hey, gentlemen, how you been? Doing great, Matt. How you doing, buddy? Doing well tonight. We're just thinking about uh, Ted DiBiase's whole career, really, especially in the WWE. First of all, every pay-per-view, he was in some kind of an angle or a match with Hall of Famers or guys who should be in the Hall of Fame. Of course, WrestleMania Four does stand out. I think my favorite stuff that he did as a singles wrestler was the work he did with Jake the Snake Roberts, actually. Especially even the WrestleMania Six match. Even though I, you know, want, you want to see Jake the Snake win so bad, and he's got the million dollar dream on him. He runs him into the post, but Virgil was able to help him, uh, Ted, back into the ring. So he was able to keep the million dollar belt. I just thought that still was such a great match. The promos leading up to it. That's another great feud. I mean, you're talking about two of the two of the best performers um, in the company. And, you know, I, I think with all of the stuff that they had obviously going on with Hogan and Savage and building to that as being their flagship um, feud, you know, from a secondary perspective, to be able to have two absolute legends in Jake the Snake and, uh, and Ted DiBiase, feud was just brilliant, you know, and I loved it too when, when Jake eventually stole the million dollar belt, um, you know, that, that just added, you know, more drama to, to everything. And, you know, them creating that belt, I thought was just such a great add to his gimmick. You know, you think about like gimmicks over the years, um, you know, a lot of them are corny and is this one kind of corny it is, but it's also very realistic, right? Like a rich asshole that tries to buy everybody he can I mean that that's a that's a even though it, it came off as kind of gimmicky, there's very real life themes to it, and you know him creating that belt I thought was just such a an, a, a great boost to the overall gimmick, um, where you know it started to have some stakes to it, you know, and and with Jake I think taking the belt from him, um, and him having to come after it and get it back again I think was uh, was such a a great way for them to to work that feud. 
I completely agree. I also liked his work with uh, Mike Rotundo later on with Money Inc. I thought they were a solid team. I thought he was a fine manager when he, in the, you know, throughout the uh, 90s when he had the million dollar corporation, especially around 1994, 95. I thought that work was very good. I'm just surprised, though, because I think it was Tease. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall him ever having a big feud with the big boss man when boss man turned babyface. Oh, man. You know what? There is that he did, actually. He had a little bit of a feud with Boss Man, and it was right around the time, um, I want to say it was in that 89-90 period, and it was after Jake. Um, and it, it, it actually had something to do. They, um, the, feud, the feud was created because I think it, there was a time when he was trying to, and it might have actually been tied with Jake a little bit because I think he might have been trying to get Boss Man to help him get the belt, the, the million dollar belt back from Jake, and he refused to I do that. it. That was Boss Man's, uh, but that was Boss Man's face turn. He attacked right. him at WrestleMania six prior to his yeah. match with Akeem, and the closest thing I remember after that it was a Coliseum video. It was a tag match with Ted and Akeem against Jake the Snake and the Ultimate Warrior, and Boss Man was the referee who Ted attacked during the match. But they never had a big blow-off for a pay-per-view or anything like that. Right, yeah, yeah. It never did get to that level. You're right. Um, they, they kind of teased it, and they went there. Um, and, you know, that, that would have been a really good one. Because, again, I mean, I've got, like, all the respect in the world for Ray Trailer as Big Boss Man. I mean, I think for a man his size, he, made, he just made everybody look awesome in the ring. And, so, and with DiBiase being such a great technical wrestler – um, that you know, you think that there could have been there could have been some things there that could have worked, and that would have been a really great way to to elevate Bossman too, coming um, off, off his heel run and making that face turn is going against a um, you know a heel that has the kind of heat that DiBiase had. So yeah, that's that's a that's a really good one where you know we didn't get the whole payoff on it, but it looks like you know I, they did do you know they kind of sniffed around it a little bit. Right, and then they went with Rude with the boss man, and Rude ended up leaving the company. So, yeah, you know, kind of, kind of good one that we got teased a little bit with, but we never got to actually see it. And you mentioned Ray Trailer being a big man. DiBiase was no, uh, as they put it, no small boy either. Six three, six four, two fifty five, two sixty. Definitely yeah. not a smaller guy. Right, right. Hey, Matt, um, let me ask you, man. Of all the vignettes, we're kind of talking about some of uh, the vignettes that built the Million Dollar Man character. Uh, do you have a favorite? Oh, I would have to go with probably. Someone mentioned it before, the one where he went to the uh, the pool and he paid the guy to get everybody out of the pool. That's like the one where he, I believe, he paid to get everybody out of the restaurant also so he could have his own table. I think, you know, as far as vignettes, as far as promos, God, there's so many in ring and all of that. I think one of my favorites though is the post match after they beat the Rhodes family. And he kept telling Virgil, you know, think about your mother, and it prompted Virgil's face. I thought that was some of the best stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guy was just incapable of delivering a bad promo. I mean, he just, you know, I, I, I kind of look at him. He, he was kind of like Flair, but instead Flair was so much about living up. Like, when he would give those promos, Flair was so much about promoting you know that the life of, of what like the benefits of the lifestyle were was like the clothes. He'd always call out the clothes and the Rolexes and you know the. I mean, he would get more involved in what the the Ric Flair Nature Boy lifestyle was about, and that would come out so strong in so many of his promos. But DiBiase, man, DiBiase kind of had that voice that was real. Like, and I think like everybody as a kid, you know, growing up, I feel like everybody knew a guy like an, an adult that kind of, when he got mad and started really like raising his voice, could you have like that real kind of gravelly, angry. And when like, when Diviasi would give promos, man, his face was like, if you go back and look at his cheeks, I mean, he gets pretty rosy and red because every word that he says has such like volatility and, and just anger and hatred behind it that like you believe everything I mean he's so believable and like I, I think when you know talking about cutting a heel promo I you know you've got a handful of guys I think over the course of time that have done it really well 
But I would say like Flair and DiBiase, even though they kind of attacked it from a little bit different reality uh, vantage points, like they come through with just such believability. You're like, man, this guy. Like, I, like I, I kind of really obviously felt like like Ted DiBiase was what you saw is what you got. Like if you ran into him on the street, that's who he was because he was so believable in every word that he said in his promos. It was so good. That's right. I think he wrote in his book and he said in interviews that a lot of the other heels especially were jealous because ha- they wanted him to live the gimmick so much. So he got given $100 bills by the office, you know, that he right. had to spend in restaurants, convenience stores, you know. So he got to actually live the gimmick, fly the first class, you know, the limousine service and everything. He he lived the gimmick. Yep. No, he did. Yeah, we touched on that a little bit earlier before you called in and, and the fact that, you know, he came in uh, not knowing a whole lot about the gimmick, but, you know, you have to imagine once he got there and they told him what it was going to be and, you know, that he would get to live this lifestyle with getting extra cash so it, it would look legit. I mean, man, that is, that's a he, that's a heel wrestler's dream right there. But I think what's interesting is, is you know, Vince and Pat Patterson and Bruce Prichard, I mean, he, this was, he was hand-picked. So, you know, he had put in his dues at some of the other territories and some of his other work where, like, they knew that he was the guy that could pull it off. And, um, you know, it it, uh, it it really did. I mean, it, it was one of the most iconic uh, characters that we've got. So, hey, Matt, before we let you go, we got to ask. I was talking to Jay earlier. Um, we were asking, you know, what <laughs> – what would your price be for the million dollar man? And this was our this was this is just to make it an even playing field. We said you're a mater, let's say you're you're a mater D at a at a really nice restaurant in town and the the restaurant's packed, but you got a reservation coming in that is a regular, he's a businessman that's got like a, a group coming in. They always you know, they're always cutting deals and it's you know, he's he's a great customer. And this guy's got a reservation. Place is packed, so his table's kind of reserved. Ted DiBiase rolls in with Virgil and says, "I want to eat. I want to eat right now." And you know, the one table that is available is reserved for a guy that's probably maybe about a half hour away from coming in. Uh, what's your price for the million dollar man? My price for the million dollar man. You mentioned Virgil, so obviously it's in the heyday. You know, he's in his. Prime and everything. The price would be two hundred bucks, or the opportunity to introduce him at his next show. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes. Well, you've got the golden voice. Do you ha- can you do the Ted DiBiase laugh? <laughs> nice man. That's good. You know, I always thought between him and Nightheart, those two guys have got the greatest laughs in the history of wrestling. I don't even know if you could pick a clear cut winner. You know, they're both uh, they're both evil and demonic in their own ways. But um, yeah, man, and and I, that was the other thing about DiBiase, which made his character so incredible, is that his laugh. I mean, that laugh. And I think I want to say that laugh almost became a byproduct because I think when they were auditioning and doing, um, you know, or when he was practicing those vignettes. I think that laugh came out and Vince heard it and was like, oh, my God, yes, I want that laugh in everything you do. And, I w- you know, I was just watching some DiBiase stuff last night and, you know, and just the, the laughs in those promos, I mean, it is – you couldn't buy a better laugh. It's just like the guy was just tailor-made to, to play that gimmick. Hey, Matt, appreciate the call. As always, thanks for being a loyal listener and, uh, and caller in of the show um, you know, we'll uh, we'll let you know what we've got cooking for next week. But uh, but have a great night, man, and uh, and thanks again for calling in. Hey, you two gentlemen, thanks a lot for having me. All right, you got it, folks. That opens up the lines. We uh, we're live here for a little while longer, talking about the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. The number to call is three two three nine two seven two nine five three. Give us a call, man. Listen, we want to we. I think about like, you know, we built this, this uh, whole thing. Tommy built this thing on, on, from social media, you know, he's got hundreds of thousands of followers. I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, about 22,000 followers on, on Instagram. And, uh, you know, a lot of the content that we post every day, you know, we want to kind of keep old school wrestling alive. We want to engage, you know, our followers in conversation and kind of get your input. Well, this whole radio show, this whole thing that's been created, 80s wrestling 
radio is we want to hear from you because we know you're fans of it because you follow it on social media, and this is your chance to just nerd out. You know, we're on here for a little over an hour every every Monday night, and, you know, this is your opportunity to come on. We try to pick some topics that we know are kind of like real great hot-button 80s wrestling topics, and, uh, you know, we kind of want to bring that social media voice to life and, and uh, you know, kind of let some of that inner wrestling nerd out. So, you know, give us a call. The number again is 323-297-2953. Um, we're going to be here probably for about, oh, I don't know, another 15, 20 minutes perhaps. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're talking about the Million Dollar Man and talking about some of the best memories of him. So, so Jay, I think kind of we left off with the main event. What are your memories of the main event February 1988 when Hogan lost the belt to Andre the Giant and turned it over to the Million Dollar Man? What uh, what did you think about that whole thing? Listen, I think that's one of the most rememberable, most um, amazing angles uh, that the WWF, WWE has ever done, especially up to that point with the two ref and the swerve and the fast count and the buying the belt Nothing like that had been seen on that level of of a show because that was a special program that was seen in just numerous households. So it had so many eyes on it. And it was such a big angle that even if you weren't a wrestling fan, but you happened to have found yourself on that channel on that particular night, the way they pulled it off, the way that the announcers handled it, the way Hogan sold it, the way uh, the Hebner brothers sold it, like everything about it was so over the top that it was a spectacle. And I just remember, like you said, uh, as a young kid, you've never seen Hulk Hogan lose, much less ever seen him without the title. Like Hogan without the title just didn't fit in to my universe back then. It just didn't seem right. It didn't look right. It didn't feel right. And so when that happened, it was shock and awe. You didn't know what was going on. I remember the confusion. I remember being angry. You just remember thinking they have to do something to right this horrible, horrible wrong that just had, just occurred. And then uh, I remember in my uh, later on in my life when, when Mick Foley started writing some books and putting them out, uh, and I was reading them. He has like a whole chapter dedicated to this angle because he didn't get to see it live. I think he was working that night on one of like his first jobs as a young man. And his friend had to ride his bicycle over to Mick Foley to tell him about what happened on TV that night. And Mick Foley recalls it in just such a way that you can tell this angle impacted people. I mean, it's we're sitting here how many years later? And this is an angle that we're still talking about. And you can hear in my voice, and I know in Matt's voice, it still excites you because up to that point, we had never seen anything done this well on this level that brought out these emotions. It was an emotional uh, angle mm-hmm. to see because if you were a Hogan fan, you were upset, you were confused, you didn't know know what, where to turn, what to do. And so I just think it was a beautiful angle that was well done. And I still think of it as one of the best angles of all time. Uh, yeah, I mean it really is, and you know it, it, it's. I wish that they could figure out a way to go back and and capture some of that, you know, magic and inject it into the product today. I think part of the issue is you don't have characters, and you don't have certain superstars today that I don't think you're emotionally invested in. Like, there's nothing like Hulkamania nowadays. And so I think that's one thing that really elevated that whole thing is that, you know, Hulk hadn't lost in four years. And, you know, you were expecting, you know, just Hulk to figure out a way to come out on top on this, right? And so when he doesn't, you know, as a Hulkamaniac, you're just, you're devastated, you're confused, like you said. Um, but, you know, I, I loved how they did the whole tr- I mean I, I th- that period of late 87 to through Wrestlemania 4 in March of 88 man like that's just perfect booking all around um, 
you know, I I love the idea how they did the 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 the, the, the kayfabe vacancy of the of the title um, and creating that tournament. Now we can talk about that on the, when we may on another show talk about WrestleMania four, and I've got kind of got my opinions on you know the execution of all of it, but the concept was just fantastic, and. Um, you know, obviously, you know, ended up with a with an epic match with uh, with Savage in the in the finals versus DiBiase, and Savage winning that. Um, but you know, I know that we're we're kind of starting to uh, to near the end of the show. But I think you know, just to, if we were to do the Million Dollar Man career right, we've got to kind of mention a few other things here. So we get past this. Uh, we have our very first Super SummerSlam in 1988, and of course he had headlines that with Andre the Giant against the Mega Powers. So it's the Mega Powers versus the Mega Bucks. So we've got Ted DiBiase in the main event of the very first SummerSlam. We also have Ted DiBiase winning the 1988 King of the Ring. We get into '89, and because now he's kind of given up hope, he's not winning the the WWF Championship. He creates his own belt, the Million Dollar Belt, which absolutely looked stunning um, on television. I mean, it looked so cool. Then after that, the next big major thing that he gets involved in is Survivor Series 1990, where he is billed as having a mystery partner on his team with the Honky Tonk Man and Greg DeHammer Valentine as Rhythm and Blues, um, along with, uh, with, with Ted DiBiase there, you know, who was going to be his partner. Of all people, he introduces the freaking Undertaker. So he's responsible for, for really the the flagship moment of when the Undertaker gimmick was brought into the fold, which I think unquestionably is the greatest gimmick in the history of, of uh, wrestling. Uh, so he introduces the Undertaker. Then we get out of that. Then he starts at like in the early 90s, Kind of, uh, he, he leaves. He leaves for a little bit. He goes back. He does some tag work with uh, Stan Hansen again in Japan, and then realizes he's got some marital problems. He kind of like, and then I think he may, he also maybe sustains a couple like he's got some neck and back injuries going on. So he knows that his days wrestling are are starting to 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 dwindle down. But he comes back. Then he forms a tag team with Mike Rotunda's Money Inc. They go on to be three time tag team champions. Um, and again, facing Hogan and Beefcake in WrestleMania 9, which is always kind of funny to think about Hulk Hogan once wrestled in WrestleMania for a tag team championship just kind of cracks me up. But, uh, but over a year and a half span, DiBiase and Rotunda, three times WWF tag team champions, which is pretty impressive. And then at that point, he knows he's, he's, he's winding down his wrestling career um, but he wants to stay involved, and so he did a little bit of commentary with, with Vince on Monday Night Raw, and then they, they put him back in in that role as the, the manager but running the stable of the Million Dollar Corporation. And I know we didn't touch on the Million Dollar Corporation really at all during this, but if you think about some of the names that he, was, that he basically managed and was the mouthpiece for, King Kong Bundy, Mike Rotunda, Sid Vicious, Sid Justice, Sid Vicious, what have you. Katonka, the one, two, three kid. Um, Charles White, who obviously went on to become, uh, you know, Papa Shango and the Godfather. I might be missing a couple more in there, but I think the bottom line is, is he had such cachet that they put him basically in charge of a whole stable of some of some huge legends of wrestling. Bam Bam Bigelow, another, another headliner of that group. Um, you know, so so he played a real prominent role there. Then he introduces Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, coming in as the ringmaster and having the million dollar belt around him. So he was at the genesis of Steve Austin's career in the WWF and was responsible for launching him and giving him kind of that big platform and, and elevating him as a as a character. And then obviously, you know, he leaves the WWF and goes to work for Turner. He becomes, I believe, the fourth member of the NWO after the big three of Hogan, Nash, and Hall. Uh, he comes in, and they call him Trillionaire Ted, playing that whole benefactor role like you know he kind of had in, in WWF. So, you know, you just span what that career looks like. You know, he was probably in the top of the wrestling world as a heel in 1988. In 1997, 90, like around 1996, 97-ish, you know, seven, eight years later, we're still talking about Ted DiBiase 
being at the root of some of the biggest uh, wrestlers and moments that uh, that the wrestling business saw. I mean, you introduce – basically, he introduced two of maybe like – I mean, I don't even know I'm going to talk about Rushmore here, but when you talk about The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin – and Ted DiBiase is responsible for introducing both of those guys. That right there tells you how much Vince McMahon thought of Ted DiBiase, shows you how much of an impact Ted DiBiase had on the wrestling business. Um, and, I, you know, again, I just don't think we can, uh, we can really say uh, enough about him. So, Jay, before we get out of here, do you have, uh, do you have any, any kind of final thoughts or things you want to chat about about uh, Million Dollar Man? The things that you just listed in the last, like you said, we don't have enough time to do justice to the career of Million Dollar Man in the hour show format that we have here. We could have done a Million Dollar Man month because we just barely scratched the surface. And when you got to the 90s and you started talking about all the amazing things that he did in the 90s and then even beyond the 90s, it, he had an amazing career. Um, Taking with IRS as Money, Money Inc. was one of the, it's an amazing team. They fit so well together. Their two gimmicks fit so well together. Uh, their shenanigans fit so well together. They were an entertaining team, but they were, like you said, three-time tag team champions, so they were contenders. And then to introduce the Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and you didn't even mention that he brought in the imposter Undertaker as well. This man introduced two Undertakers to the world of professional <laughs> wrestling. I mean, who else could do that? But Ted DiBiase, truly uh, a career worth well over a million dollars. When you look back at the retrospective of everything that he was able to do and accomplish in his career, being the fourth member of the NWO, man, I mean, if, if you didn't know who the Million Dollar Man was, but you're just listening to his, his sheet here that we're rattling off of his accomplishments and the things that he was involved with, this guy had an all-time career. It's hard to believe that one person got to do all these things, Matt. Well said, man. Yeah, I mean, he, he's an absolute legend in the business. Um, you know, I think he's been properly recognized as such. And, uh, you know, oh, you know, he was a I – guess, I guess we could also call him a 24-7 champion, I believe, uh, in the Raw reunion last night. <laughs> last week he, he bought the championship and held it for a little bit before – I guess our truth kicked his ass in the limo, which we never saw. But uh, yeah, well, uh, well, hey Jay, this is this has been awesome. Obviously, talking about uh, one of the true greats, one of the best bad guys that wrestling has ever seen. Um, you know, we'll be back next Monday night with a topic yet undetermined. Um, but I'll tell you what, if if, uh, if you're out there listening to the show, um, and you know you've got some topics that you might be interested or want to hear about uh, when it comes to 80s wrestling, you know, reach out to myself. I'm at uh, Squared Circle Classics on Instagram. Uh, Tommy Fierro is at 80s Wrestling on Instagram as well as uh, Twitter. Um, you know, we want to we hear what topics that you guys might want to hear, um, and we'll, uh, we'll kind of put a show together around that. But, um, but yeah, but, but, but uh, for all of us out there, thanks again for, for uh, listening and for those guys calling in. We're going to appreciate your participation into the show. And uh, last but not least, I guess I'll say um, anyone that is listening wants to get a little bit more Million Dollar Man, I'm going to go onto my Instagram page here shortly, and I'm going to do a live feed, 1988, May of 1988. It's Randy Savage, the newly crowned WWF champion, taking on Virgil with the Million Dollar Man in his corner. And let's just say it gets pretty crazy towards the end and uh and then there's an absolutely amazing promo that uh that DiBiase lays on Savage um at the end of that show that I'll be playing here live here oh I don't know maybe in the next five or ten minutes on my Instagram page so anyway for Jay this is Matt we're signing off on 80s wrestling radio take care everybody (laughs) 